Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm your host, John Williamson, and we are back with a returning guest today. Our good friend, Dr. Tad DeLay, is on the show talking about his brand new book. Uh, The book is called Against What Does the White Evangelical Want? And so it is very political. So if politics is not your cup of tea, just a heads up, that is primarily what the book is about and how uh, the history of uh, evangelicalism in the United States is heavily intertwined uh, with politics. So um, that is the topic that we discuss on today's episode. It's uh, Tad always brings a very interesting perspective, and he also does a ton of of really good research. So his books have always been fascinating, um, really interesting reads. So uh, definitely a very interesting book that I highly recommend that you go check out. Again, it's called Against What Does the White Evangelical Want? Um, Really cool book. But before we get into that, and before we get into the interview uh, with Dr. Tad DeLay, a couple things. So we do have our 100th episode coming up very, very quickly. Uh, very, very soon. And so very excited to release that episode. I'm not going to spoil it yet, but we did get um, a really cool, um, kind of a unique guest that we've not had on um, in this particular genre, so to speak, before. And so very, very excited to uh, to release that episode. But before we dig into that, before we get there in the month of April, uh, we have two really cool and unique episodes coming out this month, and obviously today's episode uh, with Dr. Tad DeLay, and also another returning guest. Uh, I'll leave that one uh, as a surprise uh, in two weeks, but really cool book that just came out that combines a couple of my favorite things, music and theology. Uh, so very interesting, very cool book. Can't wait to release that one. Um, think you guys are really going to enjoy that one as well. So otherwise, um, before we get into today's episode, uh, for those of you who are new to the podcast, who just joined us, welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, for those of you who've been around for a while, welcome back. 
for the new folks, um, if you want to follow us on social media, if you want to read the blog, if you want to visit our online shop where we've got cool t-shirts, pint glasses, coffee mugs, all sorts of fun stuff, buttons, um, or if you want to uh, support us uh, on Patreon, we have links to our Patreon. Uh, we've also got, uh, I think I said this, maybe I didn't, uh, social media links on there. So if you want to follow us on social media or say, hey. Uh, you can also email us through the website as well. So if you just want to say hey that way um, or uh, tell us your your story, your backstory of deconstruction, uh, we'd love to hear it. Uh, we try to get back to everybody as quickly as possible, but um, we try. We try really hard. Um, but anyway, uh, website is www.thedeconstructionist.com. It's got all our back episodes as well, so you can kind of scroll through there and uh, listen to every episode we've done over the past four years. So... Beyond that, uh, this week's musical guest is Ed Prosek. I'm, ho- I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly because he was kind enough to let us use his music and he's got some great tunes. So if you guys enjoyed him today um, and if you are a subscriber to my personal rabbit hole, uh, Spotify, we have a Spotify playlist. If you search for The Deconstructionist, um, there is a Deconstructionist playlist on there that you can, you can follow and uh, we update it. Every week that we have a new episode, whatever musical guest we use that week, we update the playlist with. So we've got quite the quite the playlist running right now. So you can listen to all the, the previous musical artists that we've used uh, over the years. So, And of course, as always, uh, please, if you like the music, uh, support the artist, follow them on social media, uh, go out to iTunes, uh, wherever you get your music, and support the artist. Uh, that's the best way to, uh, to help those musicians out and to uh, keep them creating new art. So appreciate that. Uh, thank you guys so much. Uh, can't wait to release uh, some of these future episodes that we've got recorded, uh, including our 100th episode, which is crazy to think about uh, that we will have literally 100 episodes. It's nuts. So couldn't have done it without all you guys. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much uh, for supporting uh, this crazy project and uh, keep it going as long as I can. So thank you guys so much. Enjoy today's episode. And without further ado, Dr. Ted freaking delay. Stranger to me, so stop with the bullshit now. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. Uh, welcome back, Dr. Tad DeLay. I think this is the second time you've been back as a, as a doctor. <laughs> so thanks for spending time with us again. Thank you for inviting me back on. Absolutely. So one of the things that we've talked about off and on, uh, yeah, we've, we've not been an overly political podcast, but um, considering the, the current political climate, it's, it's been um, odd, to say the least. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> We have discussed it in the past and trying to figure out just how um, so many of our Christian brothers and sisters uh, seem to support a guy who seems uh, completely antithetical to the teachings of Jesus. And you wrote a book on this very topic, trying to answer that, that very question. So what, um, what prompted you to, to write this book, um, you know, it, just, in, you know, in general? <laughs> Right. Well, the book is called Against What Does the White Evangelical Want? And it's comprised of five chapters called Against Future, which is uh, apocalypticism and climate denial and, uh, you know, the the great changes of the 21st century. 
Um, so we against future and then against knowledge, which is on the private school, the homeschool, uh, denial of evolution, the sort of alternative science that emerges um, against sexuality, which is, you know, purity culture and not a whole lot of extra explanation needed there, probably. And then against reality, which is uh, conservative media and the sort of the enjoyment of the victim complex or like the the enjoyment of of at least the perception of persecution where it does not exist and then finally against society which is theories of fascism uh, populism uh, sort of authoritarian studies um, and so I was prompted to write this book because I think more than anything I still had a lot of questions about my background that I needed to piece together you know for example I Grew up in a very, very like uh, like lower class, like working class family. They could barely make ends meet, but my parents got a scholarship into like a private school, and I and I was vaguely aware aware that this type of private Protestant school emerged in response to integration, which, and I grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas. So like we have not just the central high like integration battle that, that a lot of people read about in their high school history textbooks, but uh, more broadly, the, the South lagged behind for like, it took uh, the better part of 15 to 20 years to even really um, get the, the school districts integrating after Brown versus Board of Education. And in response to that, you have this whole emergence of a private uh, Protestant Christian school industry that were originally even called segregation academies just to, to build up this whole extra apparatus. So that's an example of something that I knew from my past. I, I knew that there was a connection between like this thing that was ostensibly religious, you know, wanting to send your kids to a school where they could have some sort of Christocentric worldview, you know, isolated from, uh, you know, this or that that a parent might complain about with a public school. But really, like, it's part of this broader political coalition that is in turn a racial coalition. And these things have histories. They are contingent. They come down to a precise moment. And I felt like I had a lot of questions that I still needed to explore. Like, these connections were, okay, I know that the school that I went to has some sort of link to uh, desegregation. Uh, but I don't even know exactly what that is. And perhaps in the process of researching, I discover there's something like 450 laws that the South passes to postpone integration. And the emergence of the Protestant school is one of these things that, that happens in response. So uh, that's kind of one example of why I wrote this book. I wanted to explore the, the uh, a lot of questions that I still had kind of remaining about uh, the world in which I grew up in light of the type of psychoanalytic uh, and historical material analyses that I did within my uh, doctoral studies, and so that, that's that's what I did. And I just I, I ended up kind of writing down a list of questions that I had, and I kind of realized that they all kind of coalesced into these five zones: you know, against future, against knowledge, against sexuality, against reality, against society. And so here we go. Well, <laughs> there we go. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, so at the very beginning of the book, you kind of lay out, uh, your, your thesis. Um, and, and so, so talk about that a little bit. What, what is the, what is the conclusion that you came to that you, you are, um, uh, attempting to, to lay out within the, the, the book here? Yeah, well, I would say the, the, the broader thesis has to do with white evangelicalism being read as a type of, uh, racial political coalition, not just as a as a as a religious commitment per se, uh, but the narrower thesis that I uh, make very early on in the introduction is that white evangelicalism is seen as this um, I don't know like a flight from reality in some sense, but 
Um, I actually want to say that it's it's a flight from shame, and it's actually an enjoyment of the anxiety that it generates for itself. So, for example, you know, you're not good enough. Uh, you should be ashamed of your sexuality. You should like repress knowledge that you know that some of these beliefs don't work, et cetera, et cetera. All of these produce a great amount of anxiety. And so the, the more narrow thesis that I'm arguing in the book is that um, white evangelicalism is a faith organized around fantasies that curate the enjoyment of, not the flight from, turmoil and anxiety. Yeah, so so talk about because at the very beginning um, you lay that out, and then you kind of go into this idea that the the boomer generation or our, our uh, predecessors um, are, are kind of operating on this short term uh, kind of idea where they're they're not looking at the repercussions of things like climate change or the economy mm-hmm. and kind of leaving this mess for the next generation. Yeah, 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 sure. So that I, I explore both in terms of, of climate and then just the, the collapse of the faith itself, right? So, I mean, for example, you know, the, the white Christians account for 43% of the U.S. population. White Protestants account for 30%. Um, from as I'm aware, the Public Religion Research Institute provides the lowest estimate at 17% of our population is white evangelical, at least as, as, as of 2017. And it's probably dropped a notch or two since then. Uh, definitely a significant drop from 23% back in 2006. Um, however, the number of people who identify, and the number of whites in particular who identify as born again, has stayed roughly the same for the last three, four decades that I've looked at data for. Uh, it's, it's always in the high 30s or low 40s. So it's, there's a, there seems to be some sort of specific revulsion at the term evangelical that I'm not sure is actually reflecting, like, just, I'm not sure that the, the uh, supposed death of white evangelicalism is quite as certain as it's spelled out to be. Um, but certainly, um, uh, boomers are, uh, let's see, uh, boomers make up 20, uh, 26% of boomers are white evangelicals, whereas only 8% of millennials are. Um, so there, there is this kind of loss of the faith, right? Or at least the appearance of that I'm a bit skeptical. Um, but more broadly, I am very interested in this um, this moment that we live in where we are increasingly losing the ability to deny what is plainly happening in this climate as as our world is, is increasingly in crisis and we are, are heading into a situation of full-scale collapse that, that is quite terrifying. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm very interested in the way that, uh, for example, I think um, uh, Greta Thunberg, the, the, the Swedish climate activist, right, is very interesting um, as a symbol here because kids really like her and adults really like to make fun of her and mock her as like this, you know, vain symbol that isn't actually going to get anything done or whatever else. And I think that like that reaction is actually not, like interesting in itself and is, is in terms of being worth analyzing. Um, I, I think it very is kind of interesting that the, the same um, boomers or even the silent generation that um, – is is furious at their grandkids for rejecting their politics and, and thinking there's something vile and the sort of overt um, chauvinism and and racism kind of on the 
our politic, you know, like there, there's almost like a sense in which some grand, grandparents, I think today, even like kind of think it's funny that their grandkids won't call them anymore just because they can't stand to have like that close of contact with a sort of like vile, overt racism. Um, I, I think that there's also something that's that's almost like provocative in the sense of of boomers thinking it's funny to destroy the world. Um, or, and, and I don't know that this happens consciously. I, I don't think that, that there's like that. I don't think it's that sinister, but I do think that there's something that I see very regularly, especially like in the, in the worlds that I look at online, um, where it looks like, uh, there's a certain generational gap where, you know, like, haha, like these, these idiot, uh, you know, millennials and zoomers, they're, they're just like terrified that the world is going to end and they should go outside and just, you know, uh, you know, play ball and like, just, you know, enjoy the world and enjoy childhood. And, you know, nothing ever changes that much. Right. Yeah. Uh, when, 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 in fact, actually, no, like the, we, we are in a catastrophic situation. We, we are, um, you know, like we, we are outside the entire, like the, our entire species history, the whole 200,000 years of homo sapiens, uh, we are now outside of the temperature parameters that we evolved within, uh, like, and that's just within the last 30 years. I mean, this thing is, is, is happening amazingly fast and going to create massive repercussions for people who are younger, uh, who are just coming of age today. And I think that that's something worth considering because the the people doing the mocking aren't going to be around that long, and the the world that they have left us is is quite terrifying. Um, one actually one great example that was, um, and then I'll, I'll um, let, let you move on here with this. But um, there was a, uh, a reports that came out last year from the National Highway Safety Transportation Board, something like that. It, it's a an executive agency like sub-agency housed within the Trump administration. They come out with this plan that says, uh, basically, we're no matter what, we're going to seven degrees uh, Fahrenheit warming. And if we implemented Obama-era restrictions on carbon emissions from vehicles, it would only have maybe a half uh, a, a half degree difference, but it wouldn't make a whole lot of difference. The warming would be still be catastrophic. And what was interesting was that, like you know, the the reaction to uh, this this study that came out was kind of like in awe, uh, not because an agency housed within the Trump administration was admitting that uh, climate change was a happening and that it was human caused, but instead the reaction was shock because their conclusion was not. We need to like like emergency like shift gears to prevent the seven degrees warming from happening. Instead, their recommendation was this is going to happen anyways. So the best thing to do would be to just try to reap as many profits as we can and enjoy it while it lasts. And, and that's the type of nihilism that I think is so interesting. That's just floating around constantly in the world today. Oh God, that's terrifying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, it, it, it reminds me of an interview that we did years back with uh, the climate scientist, Catherine Hay- Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, uh, where she talked about this, this idea, this notion that it's, it's just too expensive to, to in, uh, institute proper changes to really combat global warming. So just why bother? You know? Yeah, sure, sure. And, and most of the recommendations are actually less than we're already subsidizing the fossil fuel industry. Uh, but there still is this, this amazing idea that, uh, you know, it's just it just costs too much 
to, um, you know, to, to save the world. I always think, um, I always tell the story with my students that, um, you know, like I teach religion at college level. I teach religion and philosophy. Um, and I always think it's, it's, it's always funny because there's this uh, assumption that all religions, you know, like what they share in common is love of neighbor. And they're like, I have a doctorate in this. And I can tell you that actually what they usually share in common is a deep contempt for the rich whose wealth has rotted their soul beyond any hope of repair. Right. <laughs> um, but, um, but I had a student one time, we were playing this kind of, this very intentionally absurd ethical game where, uh, you know, a, a robber holds you up and says, okay, you, you can have your money or your life, you know, which do, which do you want to give up? Uh, so, you know, it, it is supposed to be like an analogy that says something about, uh, you know, uh, lack of free will, like we're kind of thrown into a world where we have contingent choices and we're never completely free. We're always kind of, you know, making guesses in the dark. Um, but, you know, your money or your life. And I had one student that kind of said, well, that's, you know, that's easy. Um, if I had to choose my money or my life, I choose my money. Um, and it was this great moment in the classroom because like the, there were several students, you know, up front in the classroom, they just kind of turn around and look at him and like smirk and just go, go like, what the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> like, who says this, you know? Um, but this is precisely what we do with the climate, right? Like, like you can have your money or your life. You, you can pay a few trillions of dollars to, um, you know, resolve the situation, or, or we can just uh, let the human species die out. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it is quite costly to maintain human civilization. So perhaps we just let it go. Oh, gosh. Um, yeah, Adam, Adam and I were having that very conversation the other day. Is the system so corrupted that the only way to fix it is just to let it crumble, you know? <laughs> yeah. So at the beginning of the book, um, yeah, yeah, well, I have some thoughts about that. yeah, yeah, go for it. Yeah. yeah no, because, well, I mean, I, I think this is the, one of the things that we need to understand is that like our, our battle is not against certain ideologies, like, like white evangelicalism is a type of ideology that reifies a certain economic arrangement that can't not destroy the world, right? There is no financial incentive, um, in within like the mechanism of global capitalism to preserve the world, right? Like, and this is something that the political scientist, William Connolly says is interesting as a resonance machine, like white evangelicalism, literally denies the future in that it expects an apocalypse, right? So in roughly two-thirds of evangelicals in America believe that this is the last century before Jesus comes back. So there's not really much of a reason to worry about the future. Um, on, on the other hand, capitalism doesn't really have any sort of uh, uh, mechanism to worry about the future more than a few financial quarters ahead. At most, the hedge fund manager cares about you know whether or not he can uh, you know he or she can leave money to their kids in the form of some sort of trust fund. But there's no real mechanism to worry about the future, right? Uh, if, if you don't return quarterly profits in the very near term, you get booted as CEO, right, by by the board. So the, the, there's kind of a resonance between the two, and it's it's. I, mean, I always want to kind of say it's not that like evangelicals are apocalyptic, so they deny the climate. It's that um, you know a, a lot of people want to deny the climate and uh, you know deny climate change, and we each find our own reasons, and certain reasons resonate better than other reasons. What I think is interesting too is when when you're when you're talking about this um, this end times 
you know, this fascination with the uh, ap- apocalyptic future or this end times narrative, um, it, you make the argument that it's it's almost something that um, they desire, like even the evangelical crowd desires or almost needs uh, this narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I trace that with a number of different, uh, from mainstream to very cultish apocalyptic groups, but one of the very interesting things I think that I find in the history of apocalypticism, which, by the way, picks up in earnest uh, in the midst of the Industrial Revolution, right, which I don't think is completely unrelated. I think that there, there's something about the mass changing world and the descent into chaos and the rampant pollution and the children in the factories that maybe makes us more amendable to the idea that the world is on its last leg. But if you look at like William Miller who was the guy that uh, predicted the end of the world in 1844. His, the continuers of his tradition today are called Seventh-day Adventists. Um, you know, he predicts that the world will end in 1843 or 44. When 44 comes, you know, his followers are despondent, and another follower says, well, actually, it's going to happen on October 21st of 1844. And, and, and you know, the day comes and passes, and uh, this this date when when sunrise happened the next morning on the twenty second, the followers of Miller called that day the great disappointment, right? which I think is is glorious, right? Like the, the the idea that a new day, the dawn of a new day, is somehow a disappointment. I think that's worth perhaps meditating on. Um, I, another character that I talk about is uh, I talk about the, the Heaven's Gate cult, uh, for example. Uh, Heaven's Gate was uh, a cult where in, in um, 1997, 39 members drank a mix of vodka and phenobarbital in a mansion in San Diego, and they all killed themselves on the hopes that uh, an alien spacecraft was traveling behind the uh, uh, Hale-Bopp comet and would collect their souls and take them to the literal heavens, as they said it. Um, this cult uh, originally started off by this prophetic was it was started by this prophetic duo called T and Doe. Uh, T was female, Doe was male. T and Doe said that they were the prophets um, discussed in Revelation that would be slain in the streets before the end of the world. They expected to be gunned down by the government, and then T gets cancer and dies. And so out of that, Doe hatches the plan of having everybody drink phenobarbital and vodka and, and killing themselves so that their souls could be created. I also talk about Harold Camping, which is, you know, more, more maybe now we're starting to get to something that more of the audience remembers. But yeah, Harold Camping in 1994, predicted the end of the world would happen. He had dozens of followers. Nobody cared. Um, And then he predicted another end of the world on May 21st of 2011. And it became like kind of a big cultural joke, I think. Do you remember this? Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Okay. And and then here again, like what happened? Same thing as with Miller or with some of these other cults. Um, the, The moment comes and instead of giving up and losing hope, uh, he reprojects it for October later that year. Uh, so this is the guy that's gotten like the, the date embarrassingly wrong twice, and he like you know more sure than ever projects it for October. October passes, uh, and uh, you know he dies without ever being raptured in like 2013 or something like that. Um, but uh, you know, with each of these cases, you would think that the shame of making such a clear prediction that doesn't happen, like that, that seems like it would disengage the following from your movement. But it doesn't actually work that way. Uh, human beings will double down when they get ashamed, right? Um, this this is why, like, con artists 
want you to fall for the short con, like the small con first before you fall for like the really big con, right? Um, to the extent that you uh, feel ashamed that you have fallen for something a little bit, you you can either kind of back away and say, actually, kind of I'm an idiot and I I was duped for this thing, or you can enjoy the failure, um, get more wrapped up into the plot, dive in even deeper. And, and go all of the way. And I think that that might be not just a metaphor for how we think about the climate crisis and apocalypticism, but also for whether or not you still consider yourself a good person um, when uh, you're, you know, cheering on the, the the putting of migrant children in cages or something, right? There, there are certain steps that you take that once you take them, it's going to be very, very difficult to come back from that without really, really analyzing yourself and looking at yourself honestly. How did I get here? Um, and, and that's a terrible thing to do. So it's easier just to double down and enjoy the failure uh, and, and make even bigger claims next time. Yeah, yeah. talk about that because one of the things you bring up in the book is anxiety and turmoil as sources of enjoyment. Uh, and and mm-hmm. what, do, what exactly do you mean by that? Well, this is an idea that comes from the, the French psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan, who's the, the guy that undergirds all of my theory. But one of the things that, um, that people have told me is actually a, a pretty helpful idea with them is that I think of anxiety as kind of a middle ground between shame on the one hand and indifference on the other. If you think about shame and indifference, they can externally manifest as the exact same. If I feel indifferent about something, I'm not worried about it. I'm not talking about it. I'm not jumping to defend myself. I just don't care. If I feel shame, uh, shame is the worst of feelings. When I feel shame, I feel seen too much by the world. I want to not defend myself, but instead I want to just retreat. I want you to forget that I even exist if I feel shame. I just want to be let go and like just hide away, right? So externally, like internally, they can be completely world apart. But in ter- externally, somebody who feels shame or somebody who feels indifference is not jumping to defend themselves either way. It's kind of in this middle space of, of anxiety, if you will, if, you, if we can think of it as a middle space, where perhaps um, perhaps I would really like to feel indifferent about like the way that the world is suffering as a, as, um, as a result of some of my actions, perhaps. But actually, perhaps I should feel ashamed. Let's say that um, my entire lifelong political commitments, let's say, let's say I'm like 80 years old and my entire life has been committed to American exceptionalism, consumerism, um, uh, imperial supremacy, uh, you know, the, you know, the 110 expenditure of carbon into the atmosphere. And now I'm beginning to realize that actually the climate that the all civilization heretofore has enjoyed has been robbed from my grandchildren on account of my actions. Um, that's actually something that is maybe worth feeling a bit of shame over, right? Like, I mean, like just like uh, maybe not like a full scale collapse, but like in the sense of like all of my life and all of my commitments have led to this point where I have robbed and killed to no end. And there's, there's no end to the destruction in the near future either. That, that might be something that is like the destruction of breathable air for future generations might trigger a bit of shame. And I, I would like to feel indifferent about that. And, but I can't really feel indifferent, but I also want to flee as far away as I can, can from shame. So maybe I'll sit in this middle space of anxiety. Anxiety jumps to defend itself, right? Like uh, apologetics is a great example of anxiety, right? Like you only engage in apologetics when you would like to like 
not have to worry about this belief, but you kind of know it doesn't work. So you spend a lot of time down in the library, like trying to figure out like why you're right and everyone else is wrong, even though you actually know that you're wrong. Um, the same thing happens with like the climate or um, how we're justifying this type of like, you know, um, this, uh, I don't know, so let's say some sort of policy uh, is, is disproportionately and very obviously and clearly uh, racist or discriminatory in, in some sense. Um, if uh, it, It's very easy for people to actually kind of know that. And because they're committed to the team that, that benefits from this type of discrimination, uh, the, you can actually enjoy the performance of a defense, even if you kind of know you're still guilty. That, that to me is what anxiety is, right? Anxiety is like when you've been accused of something and you kind of know that there's a bit to it, um, but you are, are going to almost enjoy like the, the, the production, like the performance of, as if you were innocent. So this is to me where, where I kind of say that white evangelicalism is kind of perfectly tailored here. Uh, to enjoy anxiety and, and, and avoid shame. For example, the example that always comes to mind is when uh, somebody who is, is very, very like ultra Calvinist, like not, not like just theoretically Calvinist, but like in the way that they really, really enjoy, <laughs> like in, in, to kind of an obscene degree, like their Calvinism, um, they, they will sometimes tell you that they are a sinner saved by grace, but like what they are doing is not confessing the shame of their sins. It's almost as if they're boasting, right? There, there's like a, a sense in which if I can just believe Believe that I'm guilty enough, I can enjoy that. And, and that's like, you know, if I'm the scum of the earth and God detests me and has saved me just by, by kind of his own arbitrary grace, then that maybe says something good about me while also saying something bad about me. And, uh, you know, we, we can get a bit like theoretical here, but like to bring it back down to the ground, I think probably anybody who grew up in a, a, any sort of white evangelical context similar to what I did, and probably evangelical writ large, not just like a white evangelical um, sect, um, probably knows exactly what I'm talking about when I say that there's something to this style of, of faith that really thoroughly enjoys the cultivation of anxiety. You're not good enough. Uh, you should be kind of ashamed, but also, you know, you're like washed clean by the blood, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, there, you know, you don't have anything eternally to worry about, but also you're kind of scum right now. Um, and in, you know, the way to solve this is to kind of work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So, you know, you're not saved by the extra Bible study, but you should definitely do it. And you should try more and you should believe more and you should pray more and you should give more and you should just generally do more because you're not enough, right? Like that's anxiety. That's anxiety. Um, so yeah, so, so that's, that's kind of like the basic way that I think about that relationship of anxiety and shame and indifference. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting. I, I found that that part of the book uh, fascinating, um, and and I want I want to get more into that, but I want to take a step back uh, just for a second mm-hmm. because you do you do talk about the history of uh, the evangelical movement and the fact that it is a, a fairly young faith. Uh, talk about that a little bit because I'm not mm-hmm. sure that a lot of people know the history. Right. Well, this there's always a, a problem with periodizing anything. Right. The, the periodizing is always. Uh, it, at some level, it's arbitrary. Uh, you know, we can trace certain beliefs back usually to, uh, you know, some sort of hazy reference point where ideas start to cluster together. And then sometimes we can trace ideas back to specific moments where they start. We're usually not that lucky. So when I talk about what white evangelicalism is today, 
Um, the, I think the primary reference point here has to be the way that um, studies and survey data, like the, the way that political science talks about this movement as a distinct entity is is that it, it does appear quite different from all other forms of religion, uh, you know, all other forms of Christianity, that is, right? Like white evangelicals uh, are kind of like their own separate thing on every survey that you will ever look at for social views on anything. Right, like they behave, they think as if they're. Uh, I won't. I don't want to say a different religion, uh, but I also don't want to say just a different denomination. I, I think of it as a different sect, and if it's a new sect of Christianity, then that kind of uh, it calls for us to think about the question of when this sect emerges. Um, and I'm not sure that I have a perfectly satisfying answer, but my intuition and the position which I defend in the book is that it is most helpful to think of white evangelicalism as it exists today, um, everything from like the mega church, the big show, the music industry, uh, the alliance with like Fox News, the alliance with like the Republican Party, single issue voting around abortion, like everything that kind of goes into this box that is white evangelicalism today, more or less with, you know, individual allegorical exceptions to this monolithic whole. Um, I think of all of that as being a response to Brown versus Board of Education. So, you know, sort of from, you know, the, the, um, Late 40s, mid uh, 50s, Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, um, up through civil rights uh, and, uh, you know, Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act, Housing Rights Act, and then the Southern Strategy in 68. Um, there, in 1964 is when you first start seeing, uh, with the Goldwater campaign, a Republican campaign built around the idea of trying to attract uh, racist whites in the South, and it doesn't go so well. And then Nixon geniusly redeploys that same strategy and ramps it up in 1968. Um, and then we get, you know, we bleed over into the 70s. Uh, we've had, like, the, the sexual revolution in addition to um, uh, liberation of, of um, uh, black people from uh, segregation, at least in some respects, uh, very qualified respects. And, and then we kind of get into the 70s. We get like 72, you get Roe versus Wade. Uh, none of the white evangelicals care about it. They're still trying to uh, resegregate schools at that time. And then in between 78 and 80 is when we start seeing everybody who will eventually be a white evangelical leader in the 80s and 90s suddenly does an about face on the abortion issue and decides that they are going to be this new moniker that they call pro-life. Uh, and so white evangelicalism grounds itself in the myth of protecting the child in the womb. But I think it is far more accurate I make a very, very careful case about this in the book. I think it is just simply far more accurate to talk about not uh, white evangelicalism as kind of being grounded in this religious right, uh, you know, protection of the child in the womb. It's instead, it's, 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 it's certainly about the protection before that of the white child from the black child in the school. Um, so that that's the way that I think of this movement is it emerges in response to, uh, you know, our children are going to have to sit next to Black children, the world is just changing too fast. It gets embarrassing in the 70s, so they switch over to the abortion thing. Uh, and then through the 80s and 90s, you get this complete marriage of conservative politics and white evangelical religion, such that there's no space between the two. And that leads me to say that uh, I think, in a sense, Trumpism today is is actually not just a completion of the strategy that began with Nixon in the 1968 the Southern Strategy. 
but instead also Trumpism is almost like a perfected form of white evangelicalism, at least on the trajectory that it's that it's been on since uh, 1954 with Brown versus Board of Education. Um, I, I don't want to say that Trumpism is the final form because I think that during the great changes and the climate migrations of the 21st century, we're going to see it kind of rear its head in new ways. Um, especially when we have um, uh, the better part of a billion climate refugees that are going to be displaced in the next 30 years, um, but you know, which is going to produce its own nativist backlash. So I don't want to say that white evangelicalism has like reached like an apex, but I do think that it's there's an undeniable uh, recent reaction uh, to it, and it's best to think of it not as a different religion. Um, or as a denomination, but also not as a completely polymorphous, apolitical thing. It, it's a it's a sect, and it's a political, racial, religious coalition in that sect. And it's doing something, and it's doing something very successfully for the last um, longer than I've been alive. Gosh, um, t- talk a little bit about because I think in the same section of the book, you you relate the fact that um, out of all of the uh, evangelical doctrines that we may get into debates about, it really boils down to one. And I, I, I thought yeah, that was yeah, interesting. Yeah. yeah well, it, you know, all of the literature that I come across, like when I'm studying this stuff and trying to refresh myself on like how that mindset works, it all kind of boils down to chosenness. Sometimes people call it election and mean something doctrinally a little bit different. Um, uh, sometimes they'll talk about it more amorphously, like, uh, you know, evangelicals have some sort of wisdom of God that they have access to. Um, if any of your listeners have ever like questioned the doctrine in their, their church, right. They, they've had this experience of being told that you're, you're not thinking right. <laughs> you need to have better thoughts. Is it like, there's like a, you know, like there's a supreme knowledge. Um, I've even heard ministers talk about how, um, they believe that you know uh, non-believers cannot uh, experience love in the same way that a believer can, um, and, and so like you know, whether we whether we want to talk about it kind of amorphously and type like a special kind of knowledge or a special kind of love, which is to be clear a special type of humanity within a given space, um, or if we want to talk about it in terms like of high doctrine, like election and predestination, uh, or if we want to talk about it just in terms of crass white supremacy, a chosen people, um, something different in our blood, right? Uh, like I have the blood of my European ancestors and my blood has been atoned for by Christ, you know, like there's, there's all sorts of classic connections that we think kind of come out of anti-Semitism and like the uh, the notion of like a like a Jewish blood and a Christian blood before we get to white blood and black blood, a uh, whole different subject and like a trail of thought. Um, but there is like this very clear. Um, uh, uh, line that emerges where those in in power really like to think of themselves as in power for good reason, and white evangelicalism to me seems to latch on to this idea of chosenness, which is sort of like a, a Christianized simulacrum, uh, you know, cobbled together from like Abraham's blessing in Genesis, right? The idea that the Jews are a chosen people, or the Israelites that become the Jews. Um, are a chosen people, and, and uh, you know, in a sort of Christian supersessionist way, Christians inherit that. Um, I, I think that that kind of supersessionism bleeds really, really effectively in, into notions of whiteness as chosenness, um, or uh, you know, conservatism as chosenness, or Americanness as like manifest destiny. Like all of these, we're talking about chosenness all the way around, regardless of what 
you know term we want to, de- uh, to deploy here. Um, and to, so to me, yes, that that's the one doctrine that they can't get rid of. Um, we will see white evangelicals, who I think even have uh, seen in the last decade or so, you know, have arguments about hell or like biblical inerrancy or like whatever they want to argue about. Um, and they will give up those ideas. Uh, gay marriage is probably another one, right? Um, they will give up those ideas long before they give up the idea that they are the ultimate chosen people and that they have the ultimate access to truth and that there's something unique about their position in the world. And so I think of that as the only non-negotiable doctrine. Everything else can and will be shown to be vacuous, and they can argue about like the doctrine of hell for like years and years. They will give up that on a, in a second if it's between that and thinking of themselves as some sort of like unique people. Yeah, talk, talk about um, – so, so the book gets – in. you know, you kind of laid it out at the, the uh, top of the uh, podcast here, but you, you kind of break it out in, into the different um, subsections of, um, I guess, what, what uh, evangelicalism has kind of influenced or, uh, uh, or that sort of thing. So you, you talk about, obviously – climate change and, and science and kind of the fight against, uh, you know, e- evolutionary theories and that sort of thing. And, and then you move into sexuality, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. we've, we've had a guest on who talked about purity culture and the, and the sort of damage that has done. Uh, talk about the influence on sexuality as a whole. Sure. <laughs> Actually, I'm really glad to uh, to talk through this because everybody always wants to just talk about climate change or the <laughs> fascism stuff at the end. Uh, and so we got to like neglect the, the middle part of it usually. Um, but yeah, so I, you know, I, obviously I don't think that you can talk about uh, evangelicalism without talking about sexuality and that too is, is racially coded in all sorts of ways. But there's also just like a pure misogynistic component that's kind of coded right in there, right? But what I think is very interesting is that but um, sexuality gets policed in ways that just kind of seem uh, bizarre and kind of ahistorical. But like the the failure of the regimes of power to actually function the way that they're supposed to doesn't seem to do anything to diminish authority. So I, for one example of this, I, I cite like the you know purity cultures demand like you know purity culture. Um, I mean I don't know just to define what we're talking about like the, the idea that dating should be more like courting or that you can have like a, you know, a purity ring that kind of represents a pre-betrothal. Um, you have like uh, daddy-daughter dates, but you never have, uh, you know, mother-son dates or like a very rare, you never have daddy's son dates, right? Like, so like, it's very clear that there's kind of weird type of Oedipal, uh, you know, like coding to, to what can and can't exist in these relationships. Um, so purity culture, uh, you know, becomes huge in the 90s where you start getting groups like uh, True Love Waits uh, or, you know, these various other abstinence pledge groups that are trying to get teenagers to, pre- like, you know, to pretend they will not have sex before marriage. And, uh, like, I don't want to uh, – obviously there are anecdotal experiences of, like, you know, we, we could go by case by case and, and find particular cases where perhaps people live up to uh, the standards presented. Um, but the National Institutes of Health did a study on this some years ago. 
uh, and pretty definitively prove that just uh, statistically, like it's, it's just pure anomaly that anybody does not, um, you know, like have uh, have sex before marriage or like that never have sex before marriage. By age 44, 97% of people have had sex before marriage. And that's if we just define it as um, uh, vaginal intercourse. So by age 44, more people have had intercourse than uh, the uh, percentage of the population that's straight. Uh, so uh, now if we expand it out to have have, uh, you know, also include non-heterosexist uh, definitions of sex or like the broader range of behaviors that people engage in sexually. Um, basically, everybody statistically on a long enough timeline, everybody has sex before marriage. And yet that does not seem to diminish the authority of purity culture regimes within white evangelicalism. And so, again, I think that similar to like the enjoyment of failure with apocalyptic thought there here, too, we have an idea uh, that nobody actually lives up to, but people still pretend to, right? Like you they'll walk into your, you know, like your your church on on Sunday, and nobody has lived lived up to this 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 demand, uh, right? Or or if they have so far, they will they will break the demand at some point later in their life. Um, but yet, that does not seem to diminish it in any sort of capacity. So, so I, I find this very interesting. Um, I, I line it up with a few ideas and observations from Michel Foucault, who is this French theorist who wrote a book called The History of Sexuality, where he talks about how in the 19th century we start to see the disciplining of child sexualities. You know, uh, you know, don't masturbate, don't like, you know, fool around with your friends, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Like, there's more surveillance of children in the school. Um, at the same time, there's the invention of the category of same-sex attraction, right? I mean, like, obviously, same-sex attraction has always existed, um, but it's not until the late 19th century that we get the term um, first contrary sex, sex uh, contrary sexual. Sensations, I think, is the term that the uh, physician Carl Westfall coins in 19 or 1871, I believe it was. Um, and then you get the term invert in the medical literature, and then again, uh, eventually you get the term homosexual. And then the term homosexual is first used in an English Bible in uh, 1946, right? Uh, which I think is, is kind of interesting as like that. So 1946 is the first year that the Bible comes out as, as anti-gay. Uh, so like, I mean, so like we're talking about things that are really, really recent that feel very kind of projected into the past uh, because we have this illusion that there's some Bible verse that says like you can't have sex before marriage, uh, which in that Bible verse simply does not exist, right? Like there Bible verses you can kind of interpret to being like saying that, but like it, it's not really that cutting dry. Um, and so, um, so like this is what's interesting to me about like the purity culture is um, it's repressive and it's it's heterosexist and it also polices certain zones of behavior. Um, uh, uh, you know, like the, you know, it, it keeps watch over particularly the the white girls. And this, here is one place where we have to talk about purity culture differently in America than it exists elsewhere because purity culture, like the versions of it that go back further, like more like a century or, or even closer to the Civil War times, those types of purity culture regimes were very much explicitly about prohibiting interracial dating. Um, so like there, there's a, a, you know, a veneer of, of patriarchy that's actually all like covering up an even deeper like anti-blackness underneath that. Um, but yeah, yeah. So like the, this, this thing is, is multiple layers. And I, I think that 
Um, my biggest point in this is that there seems to be an enjoyment in uh, creating standards for others and ourselves that we simply do not live up to. Nobody's living up to this. Uh, and all it does is create a lot of angst, a lot of pain, a lot of shame. Uh, and we all kind of like, like, like within a white evangelical space, we like all kind of agree to play this game that nobody's actually succeeding at or living up to. And so yeah, I think that that's, that's worth um it's worth analyzing in terms of, uh, you know, what, what's what's that enjoyment of failure and shame doing? Uh, yeah, and I think this chapter flows nicely into the chapter uh, that follows it on martyrdom. Uh, before we get mm-hmm. into that, though, I, you touched on, a little bit on on this more literalistic uh, interpretation of the Bible, and mm-hmm. and you mentioned that in the book as not coming about until Gutenberg's printing press. So I think that's important to talk about. Touch on that uh, for a second, if you would. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is a thesis from um, the historian Mark Knoll, who's, if you're just have not um, read him, he's, he's, he's worth your time. Um, he has this thesis that the Civil War creates a space for a type of political theology where, uh, where for the first time, okay, so, uh, to put it mildly, like uh, until you get the printing press, you don't even have literacy. Like you have to have books before you can have mass literacy, right? Like it's not like the people were literate and wanting to read, and so they, you know, produce cheaper books. It's that you produce cheaper books, and then people are able to read. Um, so that happens in the mid 1400s, and then books really start proliferating in the um, 16th and 17th century. Um, so like the the ability to even have uh, uh, like not just a Bible, but the ability to even read the Bible is only a few hundred years old um, for, for most people in society. And Mark Knoll kind of um, observes, and you know, I've seen this in the literature, I, I'm pretty convinced that he's right about this thesis, that he presents the idea that um, during the Civil War, this is really where you start getting multiple strains to justify why slavery is okay. And one of the significant streams is that the Bible clearly says it. And so you start seeing characters who will, will you know, um, you know, pound the text and say, no, like, if you, if you want to be an abolitionist, you are saying you know better than God, right? Um, it's, uh, it's a lot more committed, probably, <laughs> in the long run than we saw with, like, the lead-up to the— um, uh, you know the overturning, uh, you know, like a, like marriage equality, for example. Um, you know, like you get the same hermeneutic, but in in a much less um, libidinally invested way, perhaps. But yes, during the Civil War, like that's really where you start seeing people like pound the text and say um, the Bible says slavery is is real and it's okay. Um, so like, are you trying to go against God? And then, you know, it, it, it shouldn't be lost on people that 60 years later, when we get the Scopes monkey trial, like the debate in Dayton, Tennessee about evolution, you know, you have the exact return to that same hermeneutic, which is kind of solidified, um, especially since the civil war is happens within like five years of when Darwin is releasing his uh, Origin of Species, which Christians, you know, begin to love or hate, depending on their tradition. Uh, and then, like, a lot of racists, like, really love the Origin of Species because it, like, tells them that, like, white people are more evolved than black people or whatever. Uh, but, like, sorry, speeding ahead, like, when we get to the Scopes Monkey Trial, like, in the belief in evolution that becomes kind of, like, after the 1920s, if you're a conservative Christian, you reject evolution. Uh, that takes time to become the standard belief, right? Like, it wasn't like we were just creationists and then there was evolution and people 
pick sides. Um, you don't get creationism as a literal widespread committed belief until after evolution. Um, so like that, that's another lesson in how literalism works. Um, but also, I mean, I, sorry, let me just end on this. Um, the Scopes Monkey Trial, it was all about whether or not it's legal to teach evolution in schools, happened within five years of the height of lynching. It happened in the same decade when the South was putting up all of these uh, memorials to Civil War generals that we're just now seeing, like, you know, controversies about pulling down. So all of this is about biblical literalism mixed with a sort of hierarchical uh, racial terrorism that's sort of low-grade, uh, latently running in the background constantly. And it's out of that need for supremacy, clear lines of supremacy, that you get people appealing to the Bible as a type of literal text. Try really hard to find something Oh, that's so interesting. Um, so, so the book flows from from this from this section into a section on martyrdom. And uh, what I thought was really interesting, I love this line where you say, "When you're powerful, playing the victim justifies aggressiveness," and you mm. and you relate this idea to this desire for those with power to play the victim. Talk yeah, about, yeah. yeah, talk about that. So this is this is an idea from a political scientist called Corey Robin who um, says that. Um, however far you back you want to go in conservative thought, if you want to go straight back to like Edmund Burke in the wake of like the, the beginnings of the French Revolution, every um, prominent conservative theorist ever has basically been lamenting the loss of power, or at least the perception of the loss of power. So Corey Robbins' thesis is that um, if we want to think about like reactionaries in uh, political, cultural, religious spheres, whatever, what reaction are wanting is more hierarchy. And that produces a problem when actually you have quite a bit of power. So I think it's fair to say today that you know conservatives feel like kind of um, uh, you know afflicted on all fronts, right? Like there's the kind of a loss of power, especially at the end of the Obama term. Maybe maybe things have fluctuated a bit since uh, in the last three years. Um, but it's probably fair to say that they really didn't have that much power culturally anymore. Like they, they, their their power culturally was really on the wane, even as they have kind of an ascendant power politically that's been growing and growing for decades. And so when you are um, actually in, like when you hold the levers of power and you uh, don't feel like you have enough power, one of the things that you can do is trick yourself into thinking that actually you're being persecuted. Um, I draw an analogy to the way that Christian culture reacted to um, the like uh, the Columbine, like here, so I, I live here in Colorado, um, and in, like, you know, Columbine in, in Colorado in 1999, there was this first um, very high-profile mass shooting at a school. And one of the interesting things that came out of that was that first there was a girl called Cassie Bernal who there was a story told of her where she was like hiding in a library and one of the shooters came and, and queried her on whether or not she believed in Jesus. And she says yes, and he shoots her. Uh, contemporary accounts actually say that this didn't happen, that what happened is uh, you know, the shooter comes into the library, shouts peekaboo at her, and shoots her without querying her faith. There's another girl called um, – I believe her name is 
uh, Rachel uh, Scott, if I'm not mistaken, um, who just recently had a movie made about her. Uh, and she's also a Combine student who died. The movie is called I Am Not Ashamed. It was released by PureFlix, the same studio that does like the God's Not Dead films, if your audience is, is aware of that. Um, and in, basically the same story was told about her instead of so the Cassie Bernal story was transplanted onto her. Um, and um, neither of these happened, right? Like, so these, these were um, completely apocryphal stories. Uh, but by the end of the year, Cassie Bernal was being used in sermon illustrations around the world. Michael W. Smith um, released a, song, a famous like Christian song called um, This Is Your Time, I believe it was called, uh, that was sort of canonizing her as, as kind of a saint or a martyr. And so there was this it was this interesting period where um, you we actually have like teenagers at the time talking about their hopes that they will be shot uh, in schools, which would be very bizarre today, right? But we actually do have like a, a pretty strong record of, of a number of teenagers in Christian circles talking about like their hopes that they too would be martyred in schools, and I think that that's a really good. Um, uh, paradigm for thinking through what you get with like Fox News, right, or AM Talk Radio, where like AM Talk Radio it basically only exists for uh, very reactionary thought um, uh, from people who kind of hold all the levers of government power but don't want to think so. Um, you know, Fox News kind of the same thing. Like it's mesmerizing lights and sounds for geriatric whites. Um, who are really, really angry that they've held so much power for all time. And, uh, you know, uh, they, basically the government works exactly how they want it to. Uh, they've been able to enjoy their life and they're like, you know, living off Social Security now. Um, but their like grandkids don't respect them enough anymore. So they need to feel persecuted in some way. Right. So it's like, you know, Fox News is a great example then. Right. Every story is a scandal. Um, you're always being persecuted. There's always some conspiracy out to get you or the people that you um, libidinally identify with, you know, the, in, within the, the halls of power. And that's something that I think we need to think about. Right. This this idea that, um, you know, evangelicals are the most persecuted faith, even if they're the biggest faith with all the power, uh, you know, like the, the you know the Republican Party on the wane, even as it controls the the Senate, the the White House, and the judiciary, you know, like this is a, a powerful tool to to use to justify aggression towards others when you can convince yourself that actually you don't have the power and somebody else needs to pay for it. It's it's so interesting too because uh, you know I, I think back to the past several years and you can see this plainly in in, in the news where you see this um, this fear machine that is constantly telling you well you know these people coming over the border are murderers and rapists and stoking mm -hmm. this this fear because these people are either going to harm you or take something away from you that that you're yes, entitled yes. to yes and and I also think it's very pretextual so. Um, so this, I know this takes things in a bit different direction than what you just alluded to, but I, I do want to think about the accusation of the other as kind of a pretext for what is justified. Um, in addition to calling people coming over the border rapists and murderers and, and therefore disposable, uh, you know, some of the people that we can liquidate. 
Um, I also recently noticed that if you remember during the 2018 midterms, uh, there was this talk about this client, this caravan of yes. migrants. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, and one of the interesting things about that that I noticed in the rhetoric is that I saw a return of something that I haven't seen in quite some time, which is the accusation that there were ISIS militants hiding among this caravan. Right. You know, I guess it supposedly traveled over from Iraq or Syria and embedded themselves with a migrant caravan at just the right opportune time. Um, and I don't know if you remember this, but that was actually not ISIS, obviously, but Al-Qaeda. That was a very big justification in the creation of the Department of Homeland Security after 9-11, right? So we're seeing a trope return after like 17, 18 years. Um, but there was this accusation that Muslims were pouring over the border to perform terrorist attacks. And that's part of why we built up this highly militarized, uh, like tactical border situation, that is now opening up camps for uh, children and other powerless migrants. Um, but also, like that, that that justification is now being used to, uh, you know, as a pretext to treat migrant caravans as particularly brutal. Um, I uh, put a pen in this for just one moment, and I want to say that that migrant caravan is something that we're going to see a lot more of, right? Like the the climate migrations of the of the 21st century are going to pick up quite rapidly. We're already seeing 20 million per year displaced because of the climate. Uh, climate refugees now outnumber war refugees by somewhere between three times and 10 times as many. Uh, and that number is going to keep going up. Um, but later this century, uh, there's a good chance that significant or entire higher sections of countries like Guatemala and Honduras and El Salvador will not be habitable anymore, and they will have to go north or south. And this climate caravan is precisely what we're going to see more of. Um, again, the UN estimates up to a billion just by 2050, just in the next 30 years. That's not that far along. Um, and when that happens, there's going to be a nativist backlash. And sorry, what, where I want to kind of tie that into what you were saying is that it's not simply to accuse, uh, you know, the Latino migrant today of, you know, being a rapist or a murderer so that you can simply brutalize them. There's also these other types of threats that you will hear inserted into that situation. And I'm just going to put this out there. I know it seems a little bit probably alarmist right now, but I don't think it will sound alarmist in 30 more years. If we can indiscriminately drone strike civilian buses full of children over there, I don't see why we shouldn't have predator drones dropping Hellfire missiles on migrant caravans to keep them from coming in the U.S. over here, especially when you get that same idea of, like, the Muslim other who is coming to attack you and you just, you know, like, I'm so sorry, we have to fry a bunch of children. But, but like it must be done. That's the only moral thing to do, right? I do expect that we will see in our lifetime more of that type of logic, and that is the victim complex being weaponized as a pretext. Gosh, that's also it terrifying. Was, yeah, yeah, very sorry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it will be done. It will be. It will feel very holy when they do it. So, yeah. Naturally, yes. <laughs> so, so as we get to the uh, the the end of the book, I was I was hoping uh, that that you would have a solution. You'd have answers at the end of the book. So, so so what is the what is the thing that that you want people to take away from it? Um, it other than you know, diving deep into a depression. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. Right. No. Um, so, I mean, so you know, towards the end of the book, I, I you know, I finally address this question of again society and like 
how is it that fascisms uh, consistently emerge within democracies? <laughs> and like, what is it about that that desire to harm others that seems to be such a staple, especially like in uh, once you get like like past the industrial revolution into an increasingly globalized world? Um, and it is troubling because I don't have. Um, I don't have like a really excellent solution, right? Like I am a teacher. I like to believe that what I do in a college classroom, talking about empathy and difference and, you know, different religions and different ways of thinking about ethics. I like to think that that has something to do with it. Right. Um, I do actually think that having conversations with people around us does seem to produce some effect. Uh, one example I often point to is that between, I think it was March 2018 to March 2019, the number of people who, for example, said that the climate crisis was not just a real thing, but something that was a deeply troubling, like existential threat. Um, the number of people in the U.S. that said that jumped by like double digits within one year, which I which I think is a good evidence that conversation actually does um, play some role here. So, so I, I, th I want people to be having these conversations, study these topics and have these conversations as often as you can, but also understand that you cannot force someone to know you, you cannot, uh, you know, people, people, people change their opinions when they desire to change them or when they no longer desire to think the same thing that they've always thought. So I think it is important to understand that you cannot force people to uh, be better. <laughs> like you, you must uh, be in relations and you must have conversations. Uh, but yeah, but you have to be willing to take that step for yourself and somebody, somebody else. Um, I will say though, that I think, um, as far as like collective action, um, uh, we have real limits. And I, I, one way that I've started putting it recently is that I, I don't think that we fight um, fascism, for example, by appealing to a common good where we ask like the neo-Nazi to uh, recognize the common good or the common humanity within the hearts of the migrant, right? They will never do that. That is a losing battle to appeal to the common good and to appeal to like idealism uh, and, you know, it, common human situation. Uh, they don't want to hear that they, they are a neo-Nazi because they don't care about that in the first place, right? You don't defeat Nazism by appealing to a common good or idealism or shared humanity. You defeat fascism. You defeat brutality. You feel you defeat the this grotesque need to dominate the other by forcing people against their will if they need to, <laughs> um, forcing them to have health care and living wages and the, the all of the types of things that can produce a more egalitarian society that will disable the impulse to guard and to clamp down on resources and to kill everybody who gets in your way. So I think that, uh, you know, in addition to having conversations and to promoting education, I, I think that we need to think about like the like real, real anti-racism, uh, real care for the migrants is a political project, right? It's not something that we can simply will into being with good intentions and, and, and kind words. It, it is part of a broad political project. And we are inserting ourselves constantly, whether we want to or not, into political projects that either do or don't disengage the mechanisms that are uh, producing the mindsets of scarcity in our world. And, and the world is going to get more scarce on resources, whether we like it or not. So we best be thinking about how we can politically engage uh, and, and disengage the, the sentiments of scarcity. Ah. Uh. That's that's a good. Yeah, I know that's, that's kind good. of vague, but but I but I would just I want to be realistic because the situation is quite bad, and we need to like not pretend like we can just fix this with kinder words or more understanding. So.
Yeah, yeah. I think, I, and and I tell people even because I'm technically not a millennial. Uh, I'm that weird uh, in between Gen Gen X and millennial, that little sliver. Okay. Um, okay. But I'm even about to be 34, so I'm about okay. to do. I am thinking of it as like, I'm about to do something um, that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ never did. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> uh, yeah, sorry. I, I probably lost like half the audience there, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess I'm not reverent enough. But no, no, I am. So I am. I'm the you know Jesus' age right now. Yeah, I'll be 34. Yeah, yeah. I was born in '86. So you're so you're saying you're you're um, uh, Gen X. Yes. Yeah, so some somewhere between Gen X and millennial, and uh, I think the whatever generation you know you you're, you're labeled as I, I think they've all at least within recent history been accused of being just kind of politically uh or apolitical or or just uh disinterested or not invested and i think it, i think it comes down to uh out, outrage can only get you so far before you have to actually take action and and vote and 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 run for office and and do things to to make a tangible change so instead of just yelling on the internet <laughs> yeah 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 uh, no, absolutely, and and also at the local level, right? Like uh, you have, um, you you probably have lots of leaders that can't actually uh, do what I'm saying by like you know forcing people to have healthcare, living wages, or like post scarcity thought at a national level. Uh, but you can you can be part of your school board or your city council, right? Like there's there's all sorts of different levels, and we, and we need people who uh, they care about solving the world to to throw themselves into those types of things and the, those smaller projects that are more local right now. Yeah, com- completely agree. Completely agree. Well, the the book is fantastic as always. Um, super quotable. Um, and as usual, you, you've you've once again predicted the future because you you know <laughs> this book came out before it got <laughs> even worse. So um, sure. But yeah, thanks thanks so much for coming on. I always enjoy uh, having you on uh, to talk about your your latest work, and uh, hopefully this motivates people to get more involved and to uh, to help um, you know. Keep keep it from getting you know any worse than it already has. So absolutely, absolutely. Well, it is always a pleasure. I always appreciate talking to you guys. All right, thanks so much, Dad. All right.
Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.